HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, Greenhorns. It is Thursday once again, and it is once again time for Greenhorns Radio, radio by young farmers, for young farmers, from young farmers all around the country, beam straight to you through the computer or the uh, radio waves, as it may be. And today I'm coming to you with Greenhorn Radio. My name is Severin. I'm your host. And I am joined today by Megan Fenton, who's on the phone from Penyang. New York. Are you there, Megan? Yeah, how are you, Severin? Hello, welcome to the show. Thanks, I'm glad to be here. So, um, Megan, today we're talking once again about the issues faced by young farmers and the many roles that we occupy in this fabulous food system. Um, And you have a wonderful uh, set of hats that you wear, a whole bunch of different hats. Maybe you could... um, Start with introducing where you're from and the place that you're from, and then describe how you're plugging into the food system there. All right. Well, I live in Penya, New York, which is in the heart of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York with Peter Martins. I farm 350 acres of organic grain. We market to a multitude of different places, um, the major one being his parents' organic grain mill, which is right in Penya, and then we ship as far as... um, Albany, then we go up into Canada, and even into Israel, so we have a diversified market. Um, I'm also the agriculture agent for Yates County Cornell Cooperative Extension, so I do that um, 40 hours a week, and then farm in my spare time. Um, Through that, I serve on the local Farm Bureau, and I'm an avid member of um, Future Farmers of America. So you are um, wearing a lot of hats and working a lot of hours. and what's the what's the prognosis? What's going on in your town that gives you hope that um, young young folks are going to succeed at uh, at entering ag and succeeding um, with their businesses in ag? What's like what's the scene around there? The scene around Yates County, Yates County, where Penyon is, is is a hotbed of organic agriculture. The scene isn't dominated by young farmers though; it's people who've been in it for ten to fifteen years. But the young farmer scene is changing. We just got. Um, some new grant money in Yates County. It's called the Yates County Agriculture Development Loan, and it's specifically for organic or sustainable agriculture for the viticulture folks, the grape folks, because we have a big grape industry. And so this has helped a lot of new young farmers get onto the scene. And as I've shared with you, we have an organic brewery that's just getting funding, and it's three young boys. It's so exciting. Once you have the organic brewery, I think it's going to speed the whole process up a lot. 
Yeah, I think I think it'll be great. I think, you know, there's so much organic agriculture going on in Yates County, but nothing to really bring it attention. I guess people don't think, uh, you know, corn, soybeans, and wheat is that sexy. So I think um, they'll be really excited by the brew, and that'll let us tell our story a little bit better. Well, let's let's get back to the corn, soybeans, and wheat, um, and different grains and barley and spelt. Um, will you explain a little bit what it's like to be a grain farmer? For many of our listeners and many of the young people getting into agriculture are more vegetable-oriented or more uh, meat-animal-oriented. And grains, you know, it's good to be a second generation. It's grains because of all that equipment. So um, maybe you could explain a little bit um, what that process looks like and what you, when you guys are starting to plant. Yeah, so so grains is a completely different scene. Like I said, we farm 350 acres. Um, I have a full-time job on top of that, and Peter, um, who helps me farm, he also has a full-time job on top of that, working 40 to 50 hours for his parents' farm. And so the idea that with just our spare time in the evenings and on the weekend that we can farm 350 acres is a, a vast difference from vegetable farming, which is much more labor-intensive. We've also been able to make investments into larger pieces of equipment that allow us to be pretty efficient. Um, with the grains, where we're going all year, we've actually just got our first crop already planted. We got that planted the first week of April, so we start with oats. Um, we have oats, soybeans, wheat, corn, open-pollinated corn, spelt. We look into a lot of that gluten-free market with things like emmer, um, tritacal. So there's a diverse set of crops that we can really choose from. Um, but we're doing everything on a much larger scale than some of the smaller vegetable folks. And your farm is a brand-new farm um, that you just founded. And will you explain what it means to start your own farm? Did you, get a, um, did you go down to the county office and get yourself registered as DBA? Yeah, we did, actually. I'm really lucky, though, because my mom is a, is a county clerk for Yates County, so that process is really easy for me to get my first DBA. So we're we're very um, unoriginal. All we could come up with was MP Farms for Megan and Peter. But um, so we're MP Farms. We have been working off of our parents' farms for the past couple of years. Um, my parents are organic grape growers. Peter's farm, <coughs> parents' farm has been organic for about 13 years. They um, are Mary Howell and Claus Martins. So we both had this great infrastructure and support center from our parents starting up. So that's allowed us to um, share some equipment with them, and we uh, even shared their certification for the first couple years of starting. But for the past two, two years, we've been certified organic on our own. So we've had a great support system there. So now the land that you're, the land that you're farming, that's land that you're leasing. You, you don't have any land of your own yet. Are, is that looking to change? Yeah, we, we do lease all 350 acres from different landowners. And they're not contiguous. They're not all together. They're scattered all over the place, and we're always scrambling for land. Um, there's big competition in Yates County for farmland. We have a lot of folks that moved up out of the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area. Um, so pressure for farmland is really high, and it's really competitive to actually own your own land in this area. We're hoping to buy a farm this August that's coming for sale. But, but to give you an idea and just the investment that we're going to be making um, – you know, it's going to be about seven hundred thousand dollars for one hundred and thirty acres tillable, and so you incur a lot of the mortgage costs and the tax costs and things like that. So the reason why we've been able to buy equipment and expand the rate we have been is because we really don't 
own any land. We don't have any true land expenses. We're just renting it per acre. And our average rent per acre is about $55. So you're going to be going up if you if you do get a piece of land that's your own, your your cost per acre is going to go way up. But you would yeah, have, we're looking have at like a $7,000 a month mortgage payment. Oh my lord. I know. But now you thankfully have um uh, have as a profession the the role of educating and doing outreach into the community about um, agricultural viability. So mm-hmm. you may be exactly in the right position and with the right training networks to be able to make a um, thoughtful assessment of that situation. So, um, what is the prognosis on that? Can you can you do that? Right. So so the firm that we're looking to buy is coming up for a public auction. So that means that we don't get to work with a real estate agent or anything. That we just get to bid, you know, with a card, flesh it up. But you have to get all the financing and everything ready to go. So we had to do a really, you know, tight business plan. Can we really afford this? Can we cash flow this? Can we come up with $7,000 a month to pay for this? And how we did that was the land that we're going to be acquiring is actually is actually conventional. So we're going to have a three-year transition period. So when we did this business plan, we had to even market at conventional prices. But that's really how we try to do our business plan anyway, is try to make sure that when we – get into a new endeavor or anything like that, we always go with the conventional prices because organic prices are great, but, but one, we don't know how stable they're going to be, and two, we're really looking towards a food justice model where we want to produce organic, healthy food that everybody can afford. And if we can make it work, then hopefully we can spread that word and bring that, that cost down and also bring some profits up for farmers. So, so let's talk a little bit about what's different from conventional grains and organic grains and why the cost why the um why the prices are higher why the what the costs are different and how you can close that gap right so the conventional system you're looking most most conventional grain farmers do corn soybeans maybe a little alfalfa if they're dairy and maybe some wheat if the price is good but most of the time you're looking at a a two crop rotation the majority of them use genetically modified seeds so their seed is, is pretty expensive because they have to pay that technology fee. And so they have the stacked genetically modified traits so that they either show the BT gene so they can um, fight off the lepidopter and pests, or they can be sprayed with Roundup or glyphosate or Liberty Link or something like that. So they're looking at they – don't, they don't usually plow their ground. They plant everything no-till. Their seed costs are, are close to ours because organic seed is a little bit more expensive, but we can save back our own seed. Conventional farmers can't save back their own seed because of that technology agreement that they signed with companies like Monsanto. So they can't save their own seed. So an organic farmer can bring the cost of their seed down by saving their own from year to year. Then, <clears throat> so they don't plow either. That's the next point. Conventional farmers do no-till. They just burn the ground down with Roundup and kill all the plant matter. Sometimes they'll go in and they'll, they'll chisel plow a little bit, and then they'll plant right into it. Organic farmers, we have to plow. We have to prepare a really nice seed bed. The, the ground has to be pretty bare so that when we use our weed control equipment like cultivators and tine weeders, that there's nothing on the ground that's going to get caught in there and rip out the plants. We also want a really good seed bed so that the seeds germinate really quickly. So those are the two, two big major differences. Our weed control is done mechanically. We plow. We can save back our own seed. We don't use any herbicides like they do in the conventional system. And so also when you have in this conventional system, how we talked about, they just have corn and soybeans. 
So our system is we have corn, soybeans, and then a small grain like wheat or spelt. And small grains are, are like grasses with these big root masses, so they build a lot of organic matter. And so we have a, a much higher organic matter in our, in our organic systems. And that organic matter in the soil, that gives you an advantage in what, in what, in what instances? I'm a big advocate for organic matter. It's really my thing. And, and as an ag educator, I really try to sing this to even my conventional farmers because it will help them out in so many aspects. So organic matter can come from a couple different sources. It can come from crop residues, like that big underground root mass or, or anything that we plow under from the crop that we don't use. It can come from manure. It can come from compost. And whenever you grow a crop... It's not just exporting, you know, the minerals and the nutrients. It's also exporting carbon. That's what that organic matter is. So you'll see conventional soils that almost look gray because the organic matter component that's in your soils is usually this dark black color. And so the darker your soil is, usually the more organic matter it has. What your organic matter does is it's this really long carbon chain, and it has the ability to hold on to nutrients and onto water. And so it drives the conventional guys nuts. And they drive past our, our fields when it's really droughty out. And so there's no water. And their corn looks like, like pineapples, you know, that just turns into these, these spiky leaves because the, the plant is trying to shut itself down and close its stomata so it, it just tightens up so it doesn't lose water because there's no water in the soil because there's no organic matter to hold on to the water. When you look at our nice organically managed fields, they look just fine. They're happy as can be. They're, the corn leaves are all spread out and green. And they're not showing any signs of drought. So it's great for organic farmers, but too in the conventional system, I try to add to these guys, put manure on your fields, put compost on your fields, grow cover crop and plow it back in once in a while. Because even for the conventional guys, it has a lot of benefit. But it's well, really the and basis of the system for, for organic. Well, and, and those of us who are, um, who are total nerds about sustainable agriculture are really thankful to the Rodale Institute because they did a long 10-year or even longer study comparing conventional and organic agriculture, and they found that in terms of the, you know, quantifiable results um, that they could get from a long-term scientific study, that the drought resistance of organically managed fields was one of the most compelling reasons um, that, they could, that they could present to conventional farmers that when you have a higher level of organic matter in your field, that that really does um, confer drought resistance um, and that in, in bad years um, organic will outproduce conventional just because of the organic, organic matter. Yeah, and so, actually this year it was, it was such a milestone for me. I about fell off my chair when um, Rodell contacted Peter and I and asked us to be on the advisory board for the farming systems trial, which is what you're talking about, how they've done this comparison of conventional and organic for many years now. And so it was just great to be able to participate in that, in this, you know, really long-term research trial, and be able to give our input, and that our input was even considered worth giving was just, it was just amazing for me. So I really have to commend all the hard work that they do at Rodale. It's amazing. Well, that's amazing that they would ask you to come and, and bring your insights. Will you mind reminding um, me and also our, our listeners how old you and Peter are in this business? Yeah, I'm 23 and Peter's 21. So I would just like to say thank you to Rodale for understanding the wisdom of the youth and including us um, and including Megan and uh, Peter in that process and to learn from them and to also 
let them have access to the insight that they've got from their long time study of these issues. Okay. So yeah, well, I have to tell one little story. When okay. I when I went there, this was not that long ago that we went down to Rodale and went at the advisory board meeting. And do you know the textbook, The Nature and Property of Soils? Mm-hmm. Well, the author, Ray Wheel, was sitting right at my left the whole time. And for me, an agronomy major, that was just a huge deal that I got to sit on this board with, like, the author of one of my favorite textbooks who helped build the total foundation for all my knowledge about soil science. It was just, like, a huge validation, but also just an honor, and it was, it was amazing. So well, I look forward to participating with them in the future and, and helping them out as much as I can. Yeah, they're, they're really great, and they're have, um, we've been talking with them about doing a Young Farmer Mixer down there, and it might end up being in September. Um, and, or it might end up being um, later on in the season. We're still figuring it out. But they have um, tremendous vision. Now, one thing we didn't talk about is these wonderful tools and the equipment that I got to see um, when I was visiting the farm there. Mm-hmm. Would you mind explaining the difference between um, or just the the technological implications of mechanical um Weed management? Yeah. So, so one of the big bashes to organic agriculture is that we just take more trips across the field, right? And so we're just burning more fuel. Well, well, Peter and I really took it to heart to debunk that and um, wanted to make a system that minimized the trips across the field, got effective weed control, and was just really as efficient as possible. So we make sure we do really timely weed control, but we also use some, some pretty big equipment. <clears throat> But the price gain that we've gotten from being able to sell organic commodities has allowed us to buy some of the most fuel-efficient tractors on the market. We actually run mostly what are called spent tractors. They're out of Germany, most fuel-efficient on the market. Um, We can cultivate 12 rows at a time. We have a front mount um, cultivator, so it mounts on the front of the tractor on the the PTO shaft, which is the power takeoff shaft. And so we can see the cultivator right out the front window, which is a big advantage over most of the guys using a six-row cultivator, which is behind them, so they have to turn and try and steer and not nook over plants. So now we're able to double the speed that we would cultivate. So now we're speeding, we're speeding along, cultivating just as fast as a conventional guy would be spraying. So, so that was a great step for us because now we can say to conventional farmers, hey, look, you can move just as fast. It's not that much more work because we figured out a, fit, a system that's pretty efficient and you can move pretty quickly. So we're able to cultivate really fast. And, and you'll, you'll hear in New York that, that last year was just a really bad year for weed control because it was so wet. But because we have this front mount cultivator, we were able to cultivate all of our fields in a matter of days during those three days that it didn't, you know, didn't rain over the summer. And so in times of bad weather, that we can move that quickly and get the weeds under control really minimizes our, our losses. Yeah, you've got to act fast in that, my goodness, there was just not a single moment of pause that whole summer. It just rained and rained and rained. So you guys right. were so okay. being able to cover, you know, you know, a couple hundred acres in the matter of three days because we were able to move so fast with this equipment. You know, it saved our crop. And it brought down the, the price that we actually have to charge for the crop, you know. And, and we're really taking just a few trips across the field because we do it timely. There, there are instances where organic farmers try to get out there too much, and they're in their field too much. 
but if you do weed control in a timely manner, which is just it's a whole other talk, weed control in organic um, crops is, is a big issue. But we've got a really good system down where we have very clean fields and we can do it really quickly. Now, your system's already pretty advanced. You guys are building on the experiences that you've had coming out of organic um, farming families. Right. And you really tapped into all of the resources that existed to support your growth and knowledge and understanding to get this farm started and going. Where's the project going to go next? And are you going to both keep working um, off the farm, as it were, for the, the kind of foreseeable future? Or, or kind of what's your, like, five-year five game plan? Our five-year game plan is buy the farm. Um, I'll keep working. We're hoping to have the mortgage. Why the mortgage payments are going to be so high is because we have a goal to pay them off within five years. So that, that's why the payments are going to be so high. We want to pay it off within five years. So we want to own the farm within five years. I would like to be full-time on the farm. Peter will be full-time on the farm within the next two to three years, hopefully. So he'll help his dad out as needed, but we should have a big enough land base that we have our hands full. <clears throat> We'd like to be around the the 1,000, 1,500 acre mark by that point. You know, Peter has big dreams of being at like 3,000 acres, but I think that the 1,500 would be would be just fine, and then we can keep it at that family farm level. Wow, that's very. This is very well orchestrated uh, thought patterns that have gone into this. Just, I really like the confident tone that you have in um, saying you're going to pay off your farm in five years. It's wonderful. You know, it really all comes down to the business plan. And, and the biggest thing I see is a lot of people do their work as a labor of love, and that's fine, and that's great, and I love what I do. But putting together a really tight business plan and aiming at the conventional price instead of the organic price as your break-even standpoint really helps you get a grasp on what you can and can't afford and also helps you take a step back and go, where do I need to get more efficient so that I can break even? Mm-hmm. Now, are you taking advantage of any of the beginning farmer loans? Or is this a farm start mortgage that you guys are getting, or is it completely normal, completely straight, based on um, market rates for conventional? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Yeah, sure. Um, there, we were at the Beginning Farmer Forum in Washington, D.C., and we were hearing from the FSA and from the Farm Start program that there are a whole bunch of loans that are designed, essentially, to help beginning farmers um, capitalize their, their businesses in the first years and um, buy equipment and buy land, um, and that those are rates that are subsidized essentially by the federal government and their 1.5% um, fixed rate uh, type agree agreements. Is that, the, is that the kind of deal that you guys are getting? Yeah, we definitely depend on agencies like the Farm Service Agency and their really low loans. And that's, it's, that's definitely something young farmers need to really understand, learn, and, and seek out and approach because you can't find interest rates that low. They have direct payment loans, and we definitely use them and are so thankful for that organization because it really helped us get that seed money to start and get going. Um, and, and we also have Peter's parents who have, have gone through this, my parents that have gone through this, so they can kind of talk us through FSA. But really getting to know who works at your local FSA office is so crucial because they're always on the cusp of what new grants are coming out, what new loans are available, and where you can go. So, yes, we definitely use that resource, and, and I don't think we could be as successful without it. 
and that that success that we're talking about that's a financial success and that's a kind of a success that um is impressive i think to the folks who you're who are your neighbors i was just up there visiting and i was very impressed by the success um of peter at the age of 21 having such a fancy truck yeah it's and and but really i mean that new truck is just something within the past year you know he had a 1984 you know long before that for many years and he he definitely saved up and and worked on an old truck for a long time before he got something flashy and new and reliable so yeah, reliable but you also saw my house i don't live in the lap of luxury by any means you know <laughs> no i think but you're making it seems like good and responsible decisions and thinking long term and really carefully plotting out where and when it makes sense to have the right tool for the job. And, you know, I, I think your success, it would, it would be enough to impress me if I were your neighbor, and, and that's, I think, one of the keys to getting more and more young folks um, involved in sustainable ag. It's just well, showing... I think, I think probably why we're like that is because we, we grew up in it, and we've seen our parents take huge losses and we've seen bad years, and we've seen years with, like, the 100-year storm that washed all the topsoil and all the crops away, and all we got was the bare-bone crop insurance payment, you know? And without a plan, it's really hard to float through those times. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you realize that there are those kinds of plans we need on a, on a, more, on a federal level. It's the weird, weird weather everyone is having right yeah. now. It makes you really not start the wondering part of the whole thing, but it, it saves you in the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's see now. What else do we want to talk about? Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you're doing in your other in your other jobs and what's going on from an from an organizing perspective in New York State um, that people might want to tune into. So you're talking about my position with Extension? Yeah. So you have this this really sweet deal with Cornell Cooperative Extension, which is a great research-based um, knowledge center for a lot of people within the agriculture community, also people who are looking for nutrition resources, 4-H, natural resource resources. Um, so what I do is I'm the sustainable agriculture educator, but I'm also the land protection specialist. Half my funding comes from um, a land trust. The basis of my work is what are called farmland protection grants, where we have gotten these great grants from the New York State Department of Agriculture and Markets to actually purchase the development rights from farmers. So farmers can keep their land, they can keep farming it, they still own it, but they no longer have the right to sell it and put houses on it. And so what that does is it really lowers the value of the property because developers really can't approach on it ever. Again, it's a, per it's a perpetual thing, it's a deed restriction that stays with it forever. And so what's great about it is that this protects farmland for perpetuity, forever. And so I know you're from a region that has quite a bit of a development pressure. Yeah, I certainly am. Yeah, so this is a great way for, for farmland to stay farmland. And when you're looking for local food systems and, and small agriculture, sustainable agriculture, local agriculture, it's really important that the population centers do still have a land base around them that can support agriculture. Because once you get that, that suburban crawl, it really, really encroaches on what the farmer can do. And in those lean years, like I was talking about, when, you know, the, the soil's all washed away and your crop got washed away, it's really easy for a farmer to say, hey, why don't I just send, you know, 10 acres into development and be able to pay off my debts and float through the next year. But 
what's great about this program is Ag and Markets is giving them the money that would, they would usually use, you know, to sell and either buy a combine or they'd sell some land to retire. But this gives them the money, but the great thing is the land still stays in agriculture. So that's a really cool thing I get to do with my job. And then I also just get to do general agriculture education outreach. So people who call into my office and want to know how to grow organic blueberries or apples or anything of that nature, or organic hops, like those great guys I was telling you about, they can call into my office and we can have a cool discussion on, on how, how to go about it. And you just, you just connect them with the relevant resources and figure out what, what um, books they could read or who they could talk to within Cornell Extension? Right. So uh, all the information that goes to them, I make sure it's research-based and that there's good founding to it and try to give them some practical advice and resources and get them on their way and get them connected with the right people that will help them be successful in their endeavors because, you know, I'd, I'd like to know everything about organic blueberries, but I really don't. But I know those great people within the Cornell community that can help them out. So I just try to facilitate farmers or, you know, want people who want to be farmers in the right direction so they can get started. So now when you're just mentioning this thing about how in a hard year um, when you've got a lot of debt and you have a farm, um, you sell, can sell off a few or ten acres for development. Now, when you're driving around um, in New York or most places, you'll see that very, very frequently. You'll see the farm, the, mo- the kind of home farm, and then you'll see that they, you can just see what chunk that got developed. And maybe it was like a sister who bought out or, um, or somebody, you know, needed cash really quickly at one point. Now, is that, is that a trend that is, like, did that all happen at one time historically, or is that just kind of a continuous process where farmers just keep shedding, shedding land to development, or did that happen a lot in the 80s? That's my question. Well, you know, in the 80s with farm crises, it was probably more prevalent then, but I think it's been a continuous thing. I believe the uh, American Farmland Trust says we lose a farm every three days to development in New York. So to give you a sense of how, how much we are really losing on a day-to-day basis. So I would say it's been, it's been a, a continued thing. I mean, I can, I can think to my own county. So I live in, in the Finger Lakes, so we have these beautiful lakes surrounding us. But some of the best farmland actually surrounds these lakes. But, you know, if we have this beautiful 100-acre piece, but if you put a house right in the center of it, it's got this beautiful lake view, it's really easy for a farmer to just say, well, chip off this corner to you and this corner to you, just to rescue them out of a bind. And actually, a lot of farmers use it for their retirement. So it seems like if we're, if we're going to make progress on keeping this farm farming and, and also saving some strain on the future farmers um, who, you know, can be saved from having to drive many, many, many hours to get to their to the center of town to go to, to the movies um, because of all the suburban sprawl. The, um, there needs to be more resources allocated to helping to preserve farmland. Yeah, and, and, and New York's doing some good things now, uh, but we all know how the budget is, and, and I don't know if a lot more money. Right now they have um, $10 million appropriated into this farmland protection grant program where in the previous year it was at $22 million and that was still a little bit shy. So, so it's at half what they had last year. And if you look to states like Pennsylvania or New Jersey, you know, they're, they're many, many years ahead of where we are in protecting their farmland resources. So New York has a long way to go, but we're making steps in the right direction. Well, 
we all have a long way to go, and we're all making steps, and I'd say that you're making many, many steps at once, and I'm thrilled to have um, learned of your project and made your acquaintance, and I'm thrilled to watch as your five-year plan comes true. And I look forward to learning a lot more, and people who are interested to get in touch with you or to learn more about the farm, how would they do that? Um, they can they can email me, which would be mef46 at cornell.edu, or they can give me a call. I love I love to talk about this stuff, so it's fun for me. So three one five six nine four one three zero six is my phone number. If you wanted to ch- chat or you know toss some Learn ideas around, I think blueberries. that's really fun. But I also like to thank you at the same time for what you're doing with the Greenhorns. I think. This is just such an essential movement to get to get our voice heard to, to all different institutions and organizations that are representing farmers, to let them know that the young farmers are real and we're here and we have a serious voice and concerns that need to be heard. And I just think it's great what you're doing. Well, thanks, Megan, and thanks to all our listeners. Thanks to our sponsor for this session. It's Hearst Family Ranch in California. Thank you all for joining us once again. I will make a small plug to remind you of our upcoming event on Next week in Oregon, we're having a social and a young farmer panel and screening of just a little teaser of the Greenhorns film, and that is at the Small Farmers Journal hosted uh, horse-drawn farm equipment auction and um, swap meet. And then on April 25th in Petaluma, California, we're having a young farmer mixer at the Baker Creek Seed Bank, which is a bank in downtown Petaluma that's been converted into a seed bank. And we'll be joined by the Green String Farm Band and others, including the Sonoma Historical Society with a um, presentation about the history of the poultry industry in Petaluma. So lots and lots to know about, and please just go on our blog so you can read all about it and um, have enough information to show up. So we'll see you there, and thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thanks, bye.